0: There, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people. And my guest today wears a lot of hats, and they all center around movies, mostly scary movies. Uh, Sam Irvin is a veteran film and television director, producer, screenwriter. He's also written a wonderful book called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter. A memoir about when he was growing up and he was obsessed with scary movies. His parents had a movie theater. His dad owned a movie theater. So he got to see all these movies. And then he started a fanzine and he met all of his favorite stars. It's just quite an odyssey. And the gumption that he showed as a kid and the magical things that happened as a result of that kind of blew my mind. It was really fun to read about and super fun to talk to Sam about. He's also directed a lot of movies. Some of them you've probably seen recently on Lifetime or Hallmark. Uh, he also directed Cassandra Peterson in Elvira's Haunted Hills. We love Elvira. And if you remember that show, Dante's Cove, that was like the gay, vampy, soapy, sexy thing uh, that was on Here TV. He directed all three seasons of that show. So Sam's done a lot of things, and uh, I was excited to talk to him about all of them. So before we get to that, I just want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by me. I do it, pretty much. So if you want to support it, there are two ways you can. You can go to DennisAnyone.net slash support, and you can leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. I always appreciate that. It helps me cover the expenses that come with doing the podcast. And I'm also doing a website redo right now, so I'm excited about that hopefully the link will work if you try that um we're in transition put it that way uh the other thing you can do is become a subscriber to dnrstudios.com i'm part of a group of shows under the derek and romaine family and for a monthly subscription you get my show two days early and you get all these other terrific shows and you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com all right enough of the plugs here's the interview with sam Irvin. Joining me now via Zoom from Los Angeles, it's Sam Irvin, filmmaker and author and jack of a lot of trades, most of them cinematic. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Dennis, it's so great to be here. <laughs> I haven't seen you
0: in ages. Where did we meet? How do we know each other? Like from the 90s, right? Was it Guards yeah, and Monsters era?
1: Probably, yeah. and Maybe even earlier, um... And and you belonged to the same gym I did in Studio City, and we'd run into e- each other there. And Good old I just All the time.
0: Yeah. And I remember I, I knew Bill Condon when he was making Gods and Monsters, and you you produced that movie. Is that right?
1: I am one of the executive producers, yes.
0: And I remember and, uh, going to set, and so it might have been around that same time. Um, yes,
1: I'm exactly what it was, for sure.
0: So you've written a book called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter and it's fascinating it's about yes. it's a memoir mixed in with these interviews you did how would you describe the book to people Well
1: it's it started out uh, as a collection of interviews that I conducted as a teenager with horror film royalty I used to have a fanzine on horror films that I edited and published when I was in school in my teens and I convinced my parents when I graduated from high school to send me as a graduation present to London where I could interview all the Hammer film people like Christopher Lee who did the Dracula movies and Peter Cushing who was Dr. Frankenstein and all their Frankenstein movies and all these greats and Vincent Price and everything. And uh and so I had thirty-five of these amazing interviews that were in my fanzines. But if you didn't get my fanzines back in the 70s, these are kind of lost. <laughs> and um, and I just thought, you know, they really are great time capsules and need to be collected into a book. So then I started writing introductions to each of them, um, kind of outlining, you know, how I bamboozled these interviews as a teenage kid. And all of my adventures started to become, you know, its own memoir of my Crazy monster kid, closeted gay, eighteen gay childhood, and it was just hilarious. And I just thought, well, all right, this needs to be half memoir, half collection of interviews, and I, and I'll call it "I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter," <laughs> and and uh, and that's what happened. And I decided um, I am giving a hundred percent of the profits to the Trevor Project, nice. which is. Uh, which benefits LGBTQ plus youth. And and it is also one of Cassandra Peterson, uh, who is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is one of her favorite charities, and she wrote the foreword to my book. She recommended the Trevor Project. So, um and so that's and I just thought, wow, it's about youth, and my book is about my youth as a closeted gay teen. So it just seemed like a perfect fit. Well,
0: I was reading this book and I was kind of blown away at your life. Like you're a kid <laughs> on this London trip. You got to visit the set of a James Bond movie. You left yeah. there, you go to the theater, you run into Vincent Price who you met before, then Diana Rigg. Like, it's just like, is this somebody's life? Like, I yeah. I just couldn't believe it. As I was going back through putting it all together,
1: I almost couldn't believe the life I led back then. I wish I had that luck now. <laughs>
0: It was crazy. It seemed kind of charmed, but it also seemed like you did stuff. You went for it. You were like, you had a lot of confidence.
1: Yeah, I kind of made it happen for sure. And yeah, I mean, it was just nuts. I mean, I had corresponded with Christopher Lee and when I, and he had done a, I conducted an interview through the mail, like a questionnaire for one of my earlier fanzines, but then when I got the ability to go to London. I quickly wrote him and said, I'm coming over. And he said, great, um, when you get here, we'll have lunch. Well, when I got there, he was making Man with the Golden Gun at Pinewood Studios. And so he invited me to come out for lunch. And I spent the day with him there. And he introduced me to Roger Moore and all the Bond people and gave me a tour of the sets. And I got to stay and watch them shoot all day. And at the end of the day, his sidekick in the movie is played by Hervé Villachez, the, the little, um, actor who was, you know, deplane deplane in Fantasy Island. Of course. And got to share a Rolls Royce limbo ride with them back to London. And Hervé was, was just 10 sheets to the wind, taking swigs out of a bottle of Jack Daniels and started to regale us with stories of all the prostitutes he'd hired since he'd been in London. And, started to pepper all of his sentences with the word pussy, but he has a very thick lisp. Right. So it would pussy. And so every time he said pussy, Christopher Lees started to giggles, started to laugh, started to double over. It just got funnier and funnier and funnier. And every time we would compose ourselves, all Herve had to do was say pussy one more time and we would just completely lose it all over again. It was so surreal. And, you know, I grew up with Christopher Lee. He's Dracula. I'd never seen him laugh, ever. <laughs> so this was wild. It was totally crazy. And then, like you say, I get back to the hotel, and I decided I'm going to go see um, Diana Rigg on, as Pygmalion on the West End because I was a huge fan of her from the Avengers TV series where she played Emma Peel, and she was the Bond girl and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But she had played Vincent Price's daughter in Theater of Blood, and that's what I was really excited about. I wanted to interview her, hadn't been able to get through to her agents or any or get or get anybody to give me the time of day. So I just thought, okay, well, after the play, I'll go to the stage door and see if I can get an autograph and maybe talk to her and talk her into an interview. So I get to the theater. And I sit down and waiting for the curtain to rise. And I hear this very familiar laugh behind me. I turn around. It's freaking Vincent Price. And before I can open my mouth, he says, Sam, what are you doing here? Because I had, you know, as a super fan, I had gone to see him play in a road tour of Oliver where he was pagan, playing in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in North Carolina. So it was a four-hour drive that I held a gun to my mother's head to take me to and I had met him backstage there. I'd gone to a lecture tour that he had done. So I had met him a few times already. And and uh, so anyway, he, re- he immediately recognized me and probably thought I was talking to him. And then um, offered to take me backstage and introduced me to Diana Rigg. And I got the interview. And, you know, it was just, I mean, it was all crazy stuff like that. And you're and 18.
0: So- you're 18. And you just yeah. come from the James Bond set. And now this is happening. Yeah. So let's back up a bit. You became obsessed with scary movies, like when you were like four, isn't that right? Oh,
1: yeah. Five. At five, I my, well, my dad owned movie theaters, and and my parents didn't care what I saw. Um, you know, parents back then were not as as nervous about child rearing as they are today. Right. I mean, it was the know.
0: Mad Men era where they were having martinis and cigarettes and cocktail, exactly. or, Yeah. So,
1: you know, my dad would take me to work, and I would just go watch, you know, movies, because his office was right there in the theater. And and I saw Pit in the Pendulum, the Vincent Price movie when I was five, brand new, 1961. And uh, it just absolutely blew me away. And I, A, fell in love with Vincent Price. I fell in love with horror movies. I couldn't wait to be scared out, out of my wits again. I guess it's sort of comparable to people who love going on, you know, roller coasters or whatever. You just, you know, it's the adrenaline, you want more. I was not the kind of kid who was traumatized and had horrible nightmares. And, you know, it it was the complete opposite. I just, I couldn't get enough. And when you talk to Cassandra Peterson, she had the exact same experience I did with another Vincent Price film called House on Haunted Hill. And that's the film she saw when she was very young and it changed her life. And we both... Had, you know, just became Vincent Price fans for life, horror film fans for life. And when I got to direct her movie, Elvira's Haunted Hills, it was a spoof of the Vincent Price and Gral and Poe movies, Light like Pit and the Pendulum. I mean, it just could not have been a more perfect film for me. And the way I got the job with her is she said, are you familiar with these, with these Vincent Price movies? And I said, Cassandra, Here's Vincent Price's monologue from Pit and the Pendulum. Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You're about to enter hell. Hell, the never world, the Infernal region, the abode of a dam, place of torment, Gehenna, the rock of the pit, and the Pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she looked at me like I was crazy and said, you're higher.
0: That's how you got the gig.
1: Yeah, and I learned that in... In, in school, when they wanted us to do a monologue of like, you know, Shakespeare or something, and I'm allergic to iambic pentameter, and I asked if I could do Edgar Allan Poe, and they let me. So I transcribed from an audio tape that I had made of the movie, because this is long before D H S or anything, and uh, transcribed it, and of course it wasn't Poe, it was uh, it was the script writer, Richard Matheson, but I didn't tell them that. And, um, but it just stuck with me all those years. And of course, I got to do it for Vincent Price one time backstage, and he couldn't believe I knew it. And so, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, the only school assignment that I think really helped me.
0: <laughs> Otherwise, it was a wash. Um, yeah, it was a wash. <laughs> so you, you didn't get super scared by films. You just loved the thrill of it. You, you were, yeah, you, the, I, a rush. Absolutely. It was like you needed your next fix in a way.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I needed my fix, man. It was just. I and that was the way I was. I mean, I I just saw every horror film. It's why I ended up doing my fanzine and all. But I, when I was eight years old, my dad. This would be 1964. My dad took our family on a cross-country road trip from North Carolina to California to see all the sites, like you know Grand Canyon and go to Disneyland and you know whatever, and. Uh, One of the things he did was he got us a VIP tour at Warner Brothers in Burbank, and I walked onto the set of Blake Edwards' The Great Race, where they were shooting an iceberg sequence in this giant tank of water. Wow. And on the iceberg is Natalie Wood, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Peter Falk, and two antique cars. And Blake Edwards is directing and there's a wave machine and huge fans blowing and all this stuff. My, the eyes popped right out of my head. I did not know as an eight year old kid that this is how movies were created. I thought if they were going to do an iceberg scene, they'd go to the North Pole and wait for a storm. And it just, it just blew me away. And I, and I saw a few other things that day as well and i was just like this is it i want to direct movies and and i was you know one track mind from then on and that's what i ended up doing so it just was a seminal event for me
0: well and you also bought a coffin right you had a coffin <laughs> I did. that's commitment
1: I, I was the kid who everybody in school teased as the is the kid with the coffin Um, Yeah, I I made these little eight millimeter movies and I needed a coffin for my vampire films. And this used car dealer who knew my parents um, was selling an old hearse and they built just as a gag, I guess, for to, uh, to display in the back of the hearse. Just one of those simple wooden coffins like vampires have, you know, the very angular shape. And it was exactly what I needed. And so I asked the used car dealer if there was any way that I could buy that or whatever. And he said, well, we just sold the hers. I don't know if the owner is expecting that to be part of the deal. Let me find out. Well, it, the owner, the, the new owner didn't care about the that, didn't want it. And they just gave it to me. Of course, my mom then had to call up a friend with a station wagon and, and, you know, tell them, um, you need to go pick up a coffin for my son. So and, would you just uh, keep
0: it in your room? Like, where did you keep your yeah, coffin? So, so
1: between projects, I kept it in my room as a, as a coffee table. The lid was flat. Right. It was perfect. I could, And then on the inside of the coffin, I kept my collection of, you know, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine and other magazines. And I will also admit a few, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, skin magazines sure. hidden in the bottom that nobody would bother to dig that far down. <laughs> and so it was just, It was like a trunk, uh, you know, a storage trunk, and a coffee table, and a coffin to use in my films.
0: <laughs> when I was growing up, I loved movies, but my parents, I have one memory of going to one movie with my mother, but none with my father. You guys were in that business, and yeah. it was very Cinema Paradiso because you saw the projection booth and the concession stand and. <laughs> All of that, I I just was like, oh, this sounded wonderful to me. Um, yeah, did you change the charm. marquee? Did you ever get to do the letters yeah, on the marquee? I, even that I, sounds I, like fun.
1: It, it. I did everything, and my father even had a billboard out on on Tunnel Road, and it and it had it had marquee letters that he would put up there. Well, I have terrible vertigo, and he would make me get up with him <laughs> on the ladder to change these letters and I was terrified but yeah I did everything I pop popcorn I changed the posters I would get to keep the posters after the run of movies I would I remember when the fearless vampire killers played in our town I fell in love with that movie it was 1967 with Sharon Tate with Roman Plansky directed this incredible spoof of of Hammer's vampire movies basically and um I saw, I must have seen that film seven or eight times that, that one week that it played and I couldn't get enough of it, but I also wanted the goddamn run to end so I could get the posters and have right. them in my room. <laughs> and to this day, I got a three sheet poster, which is huge. It's 41 by 81 inches. And I got that at the time, had it framed. It's my favorite poster. It's a beautiful, full-color artwork of Sharon Tate in the bubble bath with the vampire coming down on her. And then uh, below it is this caricature of all the, the vampires chasing the, the main characters. And the main characters are sitting in a coffin as a bobsled. <laughs> and, and that particular part of the poster was painted by Frank Frazetta, who's my all-time favorite artist. And it's what I spoof on the cover of my book, I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, because I put myself in the coffin being chased by all the monsters. And um, so there's all these connections to that movie. But I still have that poster over my desk now. I mean, I've, I've had that poster on my wall giving me inspiration since 1967.
0: That's awesome. But your father, you wrote, wasn't that into movies themselves? He was into no. the business. Yeah,
1: he's just a businessman. He didn't, he wasn't really much of a movie fan, didn't really care. Um, and he was grooming me to kind of take over the business and which would have been, you know, for most movie fans, I guess would have been a fantastic business to be in and, uh, um, you know, to be handed that on, on a silver platter. I mean, you know, it all just incredible, but I just did not want to be on the outside. I didn't want to be an observer. I didn't want to be showing movies. I didn't want to keep doing my fanzine and write about movies, particularly. I wanted to be on the inside of the aquarium with all the exotic fish making movies. And uh so, yeah, I did not um go the route that my dad wanted. Um Probably a good idea. Because, uh, he was not really happy with <laughs> when he found out I was gay and when I came out. Um, so there, you know, it was a troubled relationship with my father, particularly. And, uh, and I needed to be out from under his shadow and, uh, and get out into the world and make my own way. And that's what I did. And I, um, Started out in the business as Brian De Palma's assistant, which is another thing that I made happen. I, yeah, I, I read got about to, that.
0: You just cold called.
1: Yeah, I cold I I was at the University of South Carolina, um, taking courses. You know, majoring in film, and I was also running the the campus movie theater. I was head of the sort of cinematic arts committee, and. We had a budget. We charged admission on weekends and, and uh, so we had a discretionary fund to do little events and whatever. And I decided I wanted to do a Brian De Palma film festival because I'd fallen in love with two of his early films. One of them was called Sisters with Margot Kidder um, and then Phantom of the Paradise, right. the music of Phantom of the Opera. And I just adored those movies and he wasn't well known at those at that time. Now neither one of those movies set the world on fire back then. And, uh, so I just decided I would try to track him down. And in the trade journals, which my father subscribed to, uh, I found in Hollywood Reporter a phone number for the casting office of Carrie, which was in early pre-production. And there was a phone number. I called it. They put him right on the phone. I told him what we were doing. He said he would come and he came. And that's how I met him in 1975, um, like nine months before Kerry started shooting. And of course, Kerry was the movie that put him on the map. I mean, it really, you know, that was his first really, really, really huge, big hit film. And it got nominated for Oscars for Cissy Spacek and Piper Laurie, which was almost unheard of that that a you know an independent little horror film would you know get Oscar nominations and um, it put him on the map. Well, I, I ended up um, between my junior and senior year going to Chicago to work as his assistant on The Fury with Kirk Douglas, which was a, his follow up to Carrie. It was another telekinesis um, horror thriller. And then, um, and then I went back to do my senior year. And then he called me just as I was about to graduate and said, "Do you? I'm going to be doing a low budget comedy this summer with Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen, called Home Movies. Do you want to come up and work on it?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Uh, and I didn't take. I, I finished all my last exams. I didn't even go to the graduation ceremony. I could have cared less. I just jumped on a plane to go up and work. On this movie, and I thought I was going to be his assistant or, you know, a production assistant like I was on The Fury. But he said, No, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager. Wow. And he just like threw me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And apparently I did okay because afterwards, then he hired me full time to be uh, sort of the, the uh, development executive of his production company and his full time assistant. And I worked on Dressed to Kill and to help you know, helped him develop a bunch of projects um, over the next two or three years. And uh, so that's, you know, that's how I, that that was, even though I had gone to film school at the University of South Carolina, my real film school education was working with De Palma and being on set with him. I mean, it really changed my life and gave me, I mean, I don't direct, I don't direct a scene. I don't. I certainly don't direct a movie and probably not any scene without some kind of influence of De Palma.
0: We know Brian De Palma's movies as sort of dark and sexy and, and erotic and thrilling and violent and, you know, De Palma-esque. But um, what's he like as a man? Um, he was
1: interesting. I mean, <laughs> uh, to give you an example, I went and he came out to the University of South Carolina this little film festival.
0: First of all, that's amazing that he's... So many yeses happened in those days to you. Like, it blows my mind.
1: None of this would ever happen today, I don't think. Um, But anyway, he comes out, and I had scheduled a midnight showing of Phantom of the Paradise, and we had told everybody to come in costume. We were going to give away prizes, and De Palma was going to be the judge. And the theater we ran was a 300-seater. It was completely sold out. At least half the audience came in costume. He judged the contest. We gave prizes. Everybody's pumped, and the movie starts, and there's no sound. I go running up to the projection booth. The the sound bulb had burned out. It was now after midnight in Columbia, South Carolina. There's no place to buy that kind of specific bulb. We had to cancel the screenings. Oh my and gosh. The most embarrassing moment imaginable. And I just thought all the goodwill I built up with De Palma up to now has just been flushed down the drain. Well, quite the opposite. He thought it was hilarious because he's got this very sardonic sense of humor. And every time he introduced me to people after that, when I was working for him or whatever, he loved to tell that story, to to embarrass me, you know, or whatever. It just made me memorable. But it also, he, he, he just, he got... He got off on, on you know, embarrassing me with that, and it was just that's the kind of relationship that I had with him. And he, um, not he's not the easiest person to get to know uh, for anybody, really. Um, I became much. Closer pals with Nancy Allen, who was his wife in those days, and I've directed her in in, in a movie, m- you know, many years later and stuff. And we're still friends to this day. They ended up divorcing in the eighties, and um, you know, when sometimes when people get divorced, their friends kind of go one on one side or the other, right. <laughs> and and I was kind of looked upon as team Nancy, and so I, my relationship with De Palma just kind of. You know, it just kind of faded away at that point. There was no big falling out or anything, but just, you know, I, I, I was closer, really closer social friends with Nancy. And, uh, but, um, but, you know, he, you know, he wasn't as a mentor. He wasn't saying, now Sam, this is how I do this and this is how I do that. There was none of that kind of teacher situation, but he let me be a fly on the wall in meeting. In, in rehearsals with actors, when he was storyboarding, he would uh, his films. He did it on little business cards, and would t- we we put up corkboard all around the living room of this apartment that he used as his office, and he would tack them up in rows. And it was my responsibility to to you know delicately take them off the wall, put code numbers on the back put them on the glass of the Xerox machine and Xerox these things for the different departments and then put them back up on the wall. Well, just the process of that and, uh, and you know, observing and really paying close attention to all these little hundreds and hundreds of drawings that he would do and then watch how that would be translated into him shooting the movie. I mean, it just, it was incredible, incredible incredible training for my own career as a director. And, um, you know, not most, uh, sometimes you hear, you know, assistants that just kind of, uh, you know, get the coffee and go pick up the laundry. There was a little of that, but, but but he really let me in on on the inside of the heartbeat of the creation of, of these films. And just like with Hitchcock, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the creation of his movies was happening in the preparation of them. And so even if I had only been on the set, that would have only given me, you know, a, a small percentage of what could be learned about how he makes his movies. And it was it was just all that trap. Watching all the crap and everything was was incredible.
0: How do you go from that kind of a job to directing? What made that happen?
1: Well, I, you know, as I say, I always wanted to direct, and I was directing little, you know, short films when I was a kid growing up and directing shorts in school. So, you know, it, that was something that never left me, and it, everything I was doing with De Palma was with the idea that I wanted to be doing that myself. And so um we... When, right around the time he was, we, we spent a year developing Blowout, the, the John Travolta movie. Yeah, it's great. And he, um, just right around the time that we, that it was about to start shooting, there was another project, a, a small film called The First Time. It was a coming of age comedy that he wanted another protege of his to direct and, uh, partly because that protege was had raised half the money from from wealthy family and stuff and he said to me he said listen I, he needs a producer you'd be great you should go and produce this low budget film he needs to find the other half of the money see if you can raise the money and then if you know whenever it can go it should go you you gotta go with the you know strike when the irons hot well I took one meeting with Bob Shea at New Line Cinema, and it was a slam dunk. They, they agreed to put up the money. Wow. That movie got made. And then I um it, at that point it just felt weird to go back to being, you know, Brian De Palma's assistant. Right. And I really felt like I needed to, you know, put up or shut up and get on with things. So I made a a short film in 35 millimeter did it all professionally brian let me use his editing room facilities between projects and uh and it starred uh bill randolph who was the taxi driver in dress to kill it also had bill finley who had played the phantom of the paradise um and it had wayne knight who was newman on seinfeld and it had Justin Henry, the little kid from Kramer versus Kramer, and so this really incredible cast, and it got um, accepted into Sundance, and then uh, it was nominated for a, for a Chicago Film Festival award, and and then it, because I made it in thir- the reason I made it in thirty five millimeters, I really wanted it to play with major films, right. and I got. I I got it open in Los Angeles with Martin Scorsese's After Hours, and in New York with John Foreman's The Emerald Forest, and it got reviewed by Janet Maslin in the New York Times, and she gave it a great review. So that became my calling card right. that led to me finally getting my first feature off the ground, which was Guilty as Charged, starring... Rod Steiger and Heather Graham, uh, uh, Lauren Hutton and Isaac Hayes and Zelda Rubinstein, all these great people. And uh, and it was that film, I, just go full circle, um, I met Cassandra Peterson right after that film and opened my first feature, Guilty as Charged. I met her at a party. Um, it, it was actually a party by Terry that was thrown by Terry Sweeney and his husband, Lanier Laney. Cassandra Peterson was there, and I said, Terry, you've got to introduce me. I love Elvira. I've got to meet her. And he took me over and introduced me and said, this um, this is Sam Irvin. He has he is a director. His first film just opened, called Guilty as Charge. And she went, oh, I just saw that film. I loved it. I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do a second Elvira film, I, I want to consider you to direct it. And so, you know, that's how I met Cassandra and how, you know, it, it's just all, it, it's all so bizarre how these things dovetail into each other.
0: <laughs> well, when we started talking about doing this interview, you were on an adventure with Cassandra. Is that right? Yes. Oh Tell my God. me about that. This sounds like the most amazing experience.
1: It's its crazy. Um, we made uh, Virus Haunted Hills in Transylvania, in <laughs> Romania, in 2000. So it was 23 years ago. Well, this tour company came to us called Craft Tours, run by Jim West, really nice guy. And uh, they proposed this idea of doing a tour to Romania to look at all the locations where we shot the movie, including the studio where we built sets and everything. And it would be a nine-day tour, and they would bring along... They, they would sell tour, you know, sell places in this tour for 30 super fans and it would be co-hosted by C- Cassandra and me or rather hosted by Cassandra with, with, you know, a little, um, additional guest of the director. Sure, of course. <laughs> she was the draw. Like, you know, let's, let's be real. Um, and. Yeah, so the tour sold out. It had 30 super fans. And it got postponed once because of, at least once because of COVID and the war in Ukraine, which is a neighboring country and all that. But we finally got it together this uh, May of 2023. And we all went over there and it was incredible. It was so cool. It was just an amazing, amazing time. And all these... 30 super fans, we all bonded. And it was just the, it was just the most fun. And we not only went to, uh, the, the studio where we shot the film. I mean, there's no sets still there or anything. Cause it's, uh, you know, they tore down the sets the second we were done, but, um, it was really cool because Tim Burton's been shooting Wednesday there. So they had all the Wednesday sets there. Oh, and, we interesting. Got and then, um, we went to, you know, a church that we use in Transylvania that we use for the entrance to the castle and Elvira's haunted hills. And that was so cool to see. And we did other Romanian sites like, you know, Castle Dracula where Vlad Tepes, you know, this, that, and the other. I mean, practically every castle in Romania claims to be somehow connected to uh, Vlad the Impaler and slash Dracula. Um, but we went to a bunch of those. And um, and then I had also directed two movies in Romania uh, called Oblivion, one and two, and it was a sci-fi western that starred Julie Newmar and George Kay and um, a bunch of other people. And we went to the other studio to, to because the western town that I helped design and build is still standing on the back lot of that studio and they use it all. And I mean, I, the last time I saw it used was in the Kevin Costner mini series, the Hatfields and the McCoys a few years ago, but they, it's still being used. And that really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up because it was something that I literally helped draw, you know, the schematics of, of what the storefronts are going to look like and everything. And it's still freaking there. Um, and and the same people running the studio and the the right hand man uh, at the studio was a production assistant when he was really young on those films and now he's like this big executive there and it was just i mean literally i was i was crying it was so incredible to reunite and to see this still there and you know anyway the whole trip was magnificent and uh so yeah it was it was great fun and Cassandra was there with her girlfriend Terry? Um, she wrote her memoir a couple years ago and came out. That yeah, she's I been remember with that woman for 20 years, and of course I've known them because I've been close friends with sure. them forever. And it was just so much fun. It was just a blast. Absolutely Did she dress
0: fun. up at all ever? She doesn't dress up as Elvira. Not even on before. the tour once.
1: No, no, no. All right, fair it, enough. Her, it's you know, she's kind of retired the character. I mean sure. if somebody is gonna offer her, yeah. you know, make her an offer she can't refuse. Right. She'll get she'll get in those heels again. Right. But yeah, it's it's uh yeah. She's she's really wants to kind of let it you know I mean she still goes to horror conventions, sure. I mean still still all about Elvira. Right. But she to be, you know, because on Peterson, so. Yeah.
0: What is it about your friendship? Why does it work? With Cassandra? Yeah. It's because we have so much in common. You will not believe
1: how much we have in common. It's crazy. I mean, aside from the Vincent Price thing when we were young, we're both redheads. We're both blue-eyed. We both, you know, wanted to get away from our small-town upbringing to get to, you know, showbiz, lights, cameras, action. We we love horror films. We love, I mean, just, you know, making, I mean, the, Elvira's Haunted Hills was just like, uh, it was the most fun I've ever had on any project ever. And I don't know, we just, there's so many different things. When we were shooting, I mean, this will sound crazy, but when we were shooting Elvira's Haunted Hills, I fell in love with the Jody Mitchell album uh, that came out in 2000 um, called Both Sides Now. And it was orchestral re- rearrangements of all of her, you know, hit songs or whatever. I remember it. Yeah. And it was absolutely beautiful. Well, Cassandra absolutely fell in love with it as well. And, she likes to have something kind of zen to help her when cause she does her own makeup and everything. And so every day she would be in the makeup room getting getting her Elvira drag on and makeup. And she did listening. it herself it,
0: for the movie.
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Every day. And it would take, you know, it would take an hour and a half at least. And every day she would be listening to Joan, Joni, Mitchell. Uh,
0: she and should get a special thanks in. at the end of Elvira's On Joni Mitchell. And
1: I would come in, and, and we would just, just we would just listen and cry, and oh, it was just such an emotional thing. And then at the end of the day, it would take her about an hour to take everything off. And again, she'd be listening to that. And so we're you know whenever we. Whenever that'll come on or whatever, we're all, it's, we're just totally bonded over that music. And then just recently, I, um, Ryuchi Sakamoto died. He's a, he was a, um, Japanese composer who did like the, the last emperor and all these great film scores. But, um, my favorite of his was a a film that a lot of people don't know much about and it's called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It starred David. I remember, and it was it was about World World War II. It had Tom Conti and Ryotchi Sakamoto, the composer himself, actually plays a major character in the film. But his theme music to that is so beautiful, and for the score itself, he was kind of one of those like like Giorgio Moroder back in the the eighties, who was kind of into the sort of electronica sound and everything. So the the way that the music is recorded for that movie is a little bit of electronica, but then years later, he did orchestral, full orchestral versions of it, which blows me away even more. Well, when he died, I was just like, oh my God. And I posted, uh, I found the orchestral version of the theme to that movie and put it on my Facebook and stuff. And and I was just so moved to hear it again. It was just bringing me to tears. Well, I, I just sent the clip. I just, I texted it to Cassandra and just said, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but, you know, and she immediately wrote back and said, what are you talking about? This is my favorite thing ever. I've always loved this ever since the 80s. I've always been a huge fan of his. And it's that kind of thing that just, it always, it always surprises us that we just are drawn on to the same exact thing. And when she was over in Romania, she likes to have music playing while she's signing autographs and stuff. And we had one day where we said, okay, today's the day where we're just going to get it over with. We're going to have have her sign autographs and do whatever for these 30 fans. And so she just pulled her, you know, little iPhone out and put on her regular playlist. And in the middle of it, there's Joni Mitchell from that album. And there's Ryochi Sakamoto. Merry Christmas, to Lars. Amazing. <laughs> and we just kept looking at each other, just going, "Oh my God!" I, yeah. I said, "We have the exact same playlist."
0: <laughs> now, did I read this right? You directed seven films in the past twelve months. Is that right?
1: Yes. It's a little. It's uh, you know, I'm I'm turning sixty-seven next month, and I have to say that I never, in my wildest dreams, thought I would. Be busier at 66, 60, going on 67 than in my entire freaking career. Yeah. I I mean, things were really slow during the pandemic, but boy, it's come back with a vengeance. In the past year, I've done seven movies. It's crazy. Now they're all, you know, small TV movies, right? um, Kind of gear, they're kind of in the Hallmark world. Right? You're, I just it,
0: watched yeah. the one in Zion love in Zion Canyon. I, yeah, I made love, me want to go there. I'm like, "Oh, this is a good formula." Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, the I I had a, the late the last one I did, we shot it in April and it premiered in May. That's how fast the turnaround was. Wow. Um, on the whole, and it's called Love in Zion. Yes. And, Love and Zion National, the National Park romance, right. because every title needs two nationals in it. You know. Yes,
0: you, you do. <laughs> How creative do you feel like you can be on with a with a show like that, where there's a formula already, and also there's yeah. a there's a time pressure. Like, um, what's yep. it like to direct those?
1: These films those? are shot between twelve and fourteen days usually. So it's very, very tight schedules, but that's my wheelhouse now. I mean, I, I specialize in Hallmark Christmas movies. I've done about 10 of those and Hallmark romances and wedding movies, but also lifetime thrillers. They're all kind of this 12 to 14 day, um, kind of shoot and I've got it down to a science and, um, they gave me 14 days on this one for the Hallmark movie. And honestly, I didn't know what to do with that much time. Um, I finished it in 13 days. And each each of the 13 days, we finished early every day, every single day. And one day, we finished four and a half hours early. I mean, I don't know what to do with all the time because I just get in there and get it done. And I go in super prepared because of my diploma, um, you know, and Hitch- studying diploma and Hitchcock and how they prepare everything. If you know what you're doing when you go on set, it. You're, you know, you don't have to take a million years to do it. Yeah, And um, and so, and that's why I keep getting rehired because they can trust that I'm going to bring it in on budget and on schedule. And it's going to look, you know, 10 times better than it has any right to. And the performances are going to be great. And it's, and I, that's what I love about it. Yes, the films are formulaic. Yes, we know where the plot's going, but it's, I just have so much fun and, At this point in my career, I've had my heart broken so many times on passion projects that were in development hell that never happened after, you know, putting in years of blood, sweat, and tears of rewrites and all this other stuff, looking for money. I I can't do it anymore. And so a few years ago, I just said, you know what? I don't need that stress. It's a young man's business. I just want to be a director for hire. All I want to do is just be on a set saying action and cut. And that's what I decided to do. And I put my foot down and, and luckily I'm on the approved list of directors for, you know, the hallmarks of the world and lifetimes of the world. So I get calls. I don't even have to look for work anymore. I just get calls. And, um, and so yeah, I just said, I said yes seven times last year. There and go. I just got hired for a Christmas movie that's going to start shooting uh, in July. We start, we start prepping it at the
0: end of June. Is there going to be like a gingerbread festival or an icicle pageant? There's always a big event. What's the event? It is, uh, it's, it's a dog rescue. Yes, it is. It's a dog rescue. I'm in. I'm in. Those yeah, movies they, make people feel good. And I think yeah, they, they probably make you so feel good, good right. to work on them
1: their comfort food yeah. and, and, you know, you know, if, if, you know, if people want to look down on them, I'm like, Hey, um, three or four million people are watching these the first night that they air. And then they get rerun about five more times in the next 10 days. And by the time that's all said and done, it's about 12 million people see my movie if I do some little indie movie <laughs> that right. I've spent five years trying to raise, you know, three cents to get it done. Right. And, and then 12 people see it, you know, it's like, what is the satisfaction in that? It's yeah. like, Oh, I can't, I, you know, so yeah, I'm just like, you know, I, I'm loving it. I absolutely love what I do.
0: Do your horror leanings ever come out? Like you kind of wish you could have him strangle on well, Zion Canyon. Yeah,
1: I, I I do miss that. However, I get a little taste of that with the Lifetime thrillers. That right. Yeah. So that that's always fun. And I always have like a, a De Palma homage in those. And those are great. And then, you know, um, a few years ago, I did a, a really, really sexy, gay, supernatural horror series called Dante's Cove. Oh, I'm I remember
0: correct. Dante's Cove with sexy men know. in it.
1: Yes, all three seasons of that, and it was for Here TV, right. which was, uh, which is a gay or premium gay channel, and um, and their mandate was that each episode had to have at least one moment of full frontal male nudity, and you know it was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it, and you know, yeah, that was that was tough.
0: How do you tell an actor you're the dick for this episode? Like yeah. I guess it's all agreed up front, but you have to have those conversations.
1: Yeah. And and our lead actors, of course, none of them wanted to do full frontal. So then we had to create little, you know, yeah. little bit parts of people that would come and go. Um lots of victims who would, you know, be killed or whatever. Right after a shower. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. Fun. Oh, yeah and uh and you know we would we would cast those and sometimes it would be from the adult film world or you know we would uh, we were shooting the first season we shot in the Caribbean and then but it was it was on um Grand Turk. unfortunately if we if there was just nothing there if we needed a paper clip it had to be blown in
0: <laughs>
1: and it was too, too hard so we did season two and three in Hawaii. Oh, it, oh, you know, that must've been suffered. rough. Yeah, it was very rough, I but, um, it. you know, put up. we put up signs at, at gay bars and stuff and said, Hey, we're looking for full frontal nude, nude gay guys to be in Dante's Cove. And we were already a known series by right. season two and three. And so we had a lot of volunteers who wanted to do. Yeah. Wanted to show off. There it is. <laughs> Why not? So it, it was, it was great. It was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Right. And, and our, then we had, um, Stephen Amell, who went on to be the fly, the, um, the flash, or what, or is that, is that correct? Yeah. And, uh, in the Greg Vellante series. And, um, so he made it really big. And, uh, yeah. And we, and our, our, the, the witch who was sort of the head of the coven was played by Tracy Scoggins, who was kind of, you know, the glamour. The campy glamour um, witch of the series, and she always loved to tell people in interviews that, "Yes, my character is across between Joan Collins and Barbara." And, and...
0: Oh shit, Sam! It looks like you just froze. Hang on. Oh, characters
1: across Joan and Barbara. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. <laughs> Dark shadows meets, you know, Dynasty.
0: Fun. Um, Some of the other stories in your book that jumped out at me, you begged your mother to take you to see Barbarella. Yes.
1: It's because my, um, I, I, the the other theater in town, the other main theater in town that my dad did not own was actually run by my grandfather who worked for a different chain of movie theaters. So I could get him free there, too. And I just thought, oh, you know, they'll let me into Barbarella. Well, no, they had a strict policy, this is for mature audiences only. Rules and rules.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, you know, you could only get in with a parent or guardian. So I went home to my mom and just threw a fit, I said, I have to see this movie. And so she took me and we're sitting there in the opening credits. If you recall, Jade Fonda is doing a strip tease in weightlessness inside yeah. her spaceship. You know, this is the opening credits. My mom just, you know, she gets up and she says, All right, we're leaving. Right. (laughs) Because how old are you? You can go, I'm staying. And she went and sat in the lobby for the entire film. I think she thought that I would come out there eventually. No, I waited until the movie was over.
0: (laughs) I love that story. Um, You also write about working at your father's uh, theaters when The Exorcist played. Because we yeah. all heard the stories of people fainting and somebody had a heart attack. And what was it yeah. like? You think, it,
1: you think it's all hype and you think that it's just, you know, like William Castle or whatever used to advertise, you know, oh, we have a nurse on, you know, at yeah. the theater because people are so horrified. No, we opened it and it was, you know, first of all, every show was sold out morning, noon and night. People were coming from all walks of life, people who hadn't seen movies in years, religious fanatics, hillbillies up in the mountains. I mean, it was, everybody was coming and they didn't know what the hell they were getting themselves into. And literally almost every, every showing, there was someone who threw up or fainted. By like day three, my father really did hire a nurse to come there and, 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 I and I had to clean up a lot of this vomit and everything else, so I know it was real. Ugh. And we were like handing out, you know, barf bags like on an airplane. It was, it was crazy.
0: Were you there when Jaws opened as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That played in dance theater too. And people were just, you know, I'm telling you, you know, people, people did not go back in the water because of that movie. And I was one of them. I, I, I can't get in the ocean without. Constantly looking over my shoulder for fins, you know. It's like I'm I'm a nervous freaking wreck, and it was because of that movie.
0: Yeah. When I read your book, uh, talking about starting the fanzines and getting all of these interviews and the industriousness of it, like you were yeah. just going for things. Were you also doing schoolwork? Were you Were you Did you hold up the other areas of your life? I
1: somehow managed to. Yeah, I mean, I I won't say I was a straight A student, but I got by and pretty good. I mean, I graduated cum laude from college and everything, you know. It was it, I I I managed to get by. But um but I could not wait to get school behind me, you know. Right. I, I was definitely I definitely bought into the social pressure and the parental pressure that I had to have those diplomas to, to consider myself a civilized human being. So there was never, ever a thought of dropping out of school. So I knew I had to get through it and, and all that. So I just, I just made sure I did, but, but I had so much other stuff going on, you know, in my life. Now the fanzines I would do in the summer during my summer break. So, you know, I mean, although I was planning it and, and, you know, doing stuff in preparation for it during the school year. The intense part of the work, of really full-time work, was going on in my summer months.
0: Right. And you would have friends and family collating and lining up. Like, you were always up to something. And I was like, this kid is amazing. And I was thinking, yeah. if you if you pulled off big things like that when you're growing up, does it make you think, oh, I can do stuff? Does it give you confidence in the world when you start going out as an adult?
1: It does but it also because I had such a good success rate I hadn't really thought about this till just now. But when I was just telling you how I had my soul crushed right. so two times on development hell, I think when I really analyze it, I think that my soul is crushed even more so when some, when a project doesn't happen because I was so used to, as a kid, being charmed and having things actually happen. Right. So, yeah, as an adult, I was fearless about approaching all these different projects and development. And then the success rate went from, you know, 100% success to almost 0% success. And I genuinely, not kidding have PTSD over the heartbreak and the soul crushing oh, of so many projects in development in hell that did not happen. I, and, I get it. I, I thought about it to literally this conversation, but I think it was the contrast yeah. of, of having so many things go my way and then not at all.
0: <laughs> I can relate to that because in the nineties, when I started my journalism career and then I, I got a book deal, I got a lot of yeses. And then, yeah. then then, things aren't like that forever. And I thought, I bet I used up all my yeses. I bet I'm not going to get any more. I, like, I had yeah. those thoughts and that feeling of, like, you know what? I made the most of them, but I used them all up. They're all gone. And uh, yeah. it can feel like that. What kept you going through those down times? What kept you in it?
1: Well, you know, part of it, I mean, there were lean times. I mean, I had to... Mm, I wasn't getting offers to direct things. Um, I spent three or four years teaching directing at USC, the not University of South Carolina, but actually University of Southern California in the Cinematic Arts Department. And by the way, one of my students was Ryan Coogler who went on to do Fruitvale Station and right. Creed and Black Panther. <laughs> right on. Um, and which is fantastic. And I couldn't be more thrilled for him, but it's also kind of daunting to, to have my own career where I, you know, never really broken through even, you know, to do a major studio movie, all my stuff is these low budget films and independent films and TV movies. And here my student, you know, just like leapfrogs up to a billion dollar grossing movie. (laughs) It's, it's, it's wild. How do
0: you think Uh, about that? Does it make you feel bad or do you have to sort of make peace with it? I'm, I am
1: at peace with it now, um because I did get to experience those big budget films when I was working for De Palma. Right. And I've become so economic in the way that I do these low budget films that I, at, at this point, if I got offered a big film like that, I, I couldn't adapt to it. I would be so impatient. I wouldn't be able to deal with the, the, the tremendous committee kind of situation that you get into with these big studio movies with so much writing on everything. And, and I could, I couldn't, you know, when I look back on De Palma, he would do, you know, a dialogue scene and it would take all day or two days or something. I mean, I can, you know, do a dialogue scene, you know, in two hours. And if it takes longer than that, I'm like yawning and bored with it already. Um So, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I this I'm in the I'm in the right niche where I should be, and and any anything bigger than that is is not going to be something I'm going to enjoy doing at all.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Um, so yeah, I don't really envy that anymore. I mean, there was a time when I'm like, you know, gosh, I'm hanging out with all these major filmmakers and meeting, you know. De Palma and all his buddies, from Scorsese to Spielberg, and all these—you know—why am I not getting in that world? But it just wasn't meant to be, and I—I just—I really enjoy what I—I I, I enjoy what I do now better. Right. I think it's for me it's better to be a bigger fish in a tiny pond than to be a tadpole in a I'm also not very competitive. I'm. I, as a gay kid, I I was always I didn't have the sports gene, and so I was always embarrassed. I was the last person picked on every team, you know. And we had track; I was the last person to finish, cross the finish line. All those horrifically embarrassing and and detrimental emotional things to where I, whenever there's a competition, I kind of shut down. That's interesting. I will not, I could never survive as an actor, you know, going to auditions and competing with other actors for the same role. Yeah. And if there's a situation where they want me to come in and pitch, give them my pitch to direct the movie because they're considering other directors, no, I'm I, not, not interested. Yeah. I'm out. If they want me, they can offer it to me. Otherwise, no, I'm not going to compete for anything. Yeah, and, and that's a deep-rooted thing that goes all the way back to my childhood for sure. And, and, you know, to be in the big leagues, it's all about competition and cutthroat and you have to play the game and you have to, you have to pitch things and it's just not me. I I just can't do it.
0: That's not a good fit. Um, Growing up, I never felt that bad about being gay or being different because it was connected to my creativity. I felt like they were connected. It was connected to the parts of myself that I liked the best. How did that intersect for you, your, your you're coming into your own as a gay person, but also your love for all of these um, movie-related things.
1: Yeah. it's it, Yeah, my, the, I, you know, I am, you know, I was a kid in the 60s and 70s when being gay was still not accepted. And in my hometown, there was just, there were no role models particularly, um, nobody that was really out except for a couple of, you know a couple of people who I did not identify with at all um and it just you know it just never seemed like it was even possible right I, to leave that as a as a lifestyle and I was fooling around guys on the down low but as as far as being out there was just no way it was a
0: non-starter and yeah
1: I ended up I ended up marrying a woman. We were together for six years. It was, you know, I didn't come out until I was 25. I was totally brainwashed and bought into the fact that I just could not pursue being gay. And I had convinced myself that I must be bisexual because I did enjoy, you know, having sex with women and stuff. But only because I was kind of pressured into it from society and my parents, you know? Right. So, but once I moved, after I graduated and moved to New York to work for De Palma and being in New York, suddenly huge gay community, huge gay role models, all of that, then I, you know, found myself, I met my now husband, Gary, in 1982. And uh, we've been together 41 years. Amazing. And um, divorced my wife. She when the dust settled, she wanted to meet Gary. Gary's a hairdresser. Uh Three of us went out to dinner. They hit it off, and she started going to him to get her hair done the rest of the years
0: we lived in New York. That's amazing. So, that feels and, like it's okay. a, a movie you should make.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, so, you know, it's, as awful as it all sounds, it kind of had a kind of amusing, happy ending. Um, but, yeah. So for me, the dealing with coming out and all of that was, was tougher. Um I, I knew, as I say, I knew I was gay or I knew I was attracted to men for sure. Um, but it was, it was just something that I had to kind of keep on the down low and keep on the side and not, and not think, and not overthink it. Um, but also it's connected to my heart leanings in that it's the whole outsider theory. My favorite film of all time is The Bride of Frankenstein. My favorite char- horror character is the Frankenstein monster. And it's because I identify, I, even seeing that as a kid, at, you know, probably four or five years old on television, I somehow always identified with him as a freak of nature, a um, a, an outsider that was misunderstood by society. It's all those things that, that, uh, that a closeted gay person is feeling. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I find out many years later that the the Frankenstein, the Bride of Frankenstein was directed by James Whale, who was gay. And all of this subtext in there, it was absolutely intentional. And, in *Bride of Frankenstein*, they have the Dr. Pretorius character, who is absolutely a gay character and is considered, you know, one of the first mainstream gay characters in cinema, and all these things. And and it comes full circle, and I get to work on *Gods and Monsters*, where we have Ian McKellen playing James Whale, and we do a flashback of him directing *Bride of Frankenstein*, and we we have an actor playing Dr. Pretorius. I mean, it's just mind-boggling how. How perfect that movie was for me to work on, and um but it 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 you know i I didn't realize until you know years later how much the whole Frankenstein mythology and those movies really played into my closeted um childhood as as a as a closeted gay kid
0: that's interesting. As someone who worked on Gods and Monsters, what was it like to see Brendan Fraser have that huge comeback this year?
1: Oh, it, it's so incredible! I was so—I oh, guess my dog doesn't think so. Yeah,
0: your dog's a big <laughs> Brendan Fraser fan. Yeah, that, yeah exactly. Um,
1: no, I was so 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 proud and happy for Brendan. It's it's just been so long in coming because he's had such a such a rough time over the last. <clears throat> you know, a couple of decades with his career and everything. And I just, he's so deserving and so needed uh, this big comeback break. And, and I'm just thrilled that he got it. He's, he was so good in Gods and Monsters. And I just, I just really loved him. I'll tell you a funny story though. When we, he started that movie. I, you know, We didn't know what to expect. Ian McKellen had not done Lord of the Rings and all this stuff. Right. You know, I hadn't seen him in times on talk shows. I didn't didn't know what to expect with him. He was just this Shakespearean actor coming over from England who we all loved as an actor, but we didn't really know what he was going to be like. And we expected he was going to be very serious. And, you know, this serious Shakespearean actor. Well, Brendan thought the same thing. And Brendan was... Was very intimidated about working with him, and Brendan, who was coming off of you know silly comedies and he had just filmed George of the Jungle and you know silly stuff, we thought he was going to be a riot and the guy cracking jokes on the set and all this stuff. Okay. And, but no, Brendan was always in his trailer learning his lines and being worried and and intimidated about working with Ian McKellen, and he was he was no fun at all. <laughs> Ian shows up, and Ian's the one cracking the jokes, and just an absolute hilarious person. And you know, when Bill Condon would you know be ready to shoot the scene, he practical, you know, Ian would be in the middle of telling a joke, and, and Bill is like, "Ah, Ian, we got we got to do this." and he would, you know, he said, just just a minute, let me finish this joke. And he would finish the joke, and then, you know, then Bill would say, and action, and Ian would just snap into character on a dime. Yeah. And we were all amazed at how he could do that. Whereas, you know, Brendan would, like, need to warm up. He'd sure. need to have, have that time before the scene started. And um, anyway, it was just funny, the contrast. But, you know, Brendan... While we were shooting the movie, the George of the Jungle opened and it was his biggest opening ever. It was a Disney release and this huge thing. Brendan had agreed to do full frontal nudity in the, in the climactic, uh, scene with Ian. And, but every day his entourage started to get bigger and bigger. Disney executives, marketing people, publicity yeah. people, um, agents, all this stuff. And they talked him out of it. And Ugh. I guess when you're working for Disney, uh, you know, back then, you didn't, you know, doing full frontal nudity was, was a much bigger deal than it is now. And Ian, when Ian found out that Brendan had backed out of doing that, <laughs> Ian just stripped off all of his clothes completely naked and jokingly said, I will be in my trailer. And, and stormed off the
0: set. That's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> what a story. I got to visit the set one day when um, uh, Jack Plotnick was f- shooting that interview scene. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, And I remember, I think Ian fell asleep during a take. <laughs> if yes. I'm not mistaken. But it was cool. It was fun. It was like, and then it, to see it do well and go to the Oscars. Was that amazing?
1: Yes. It was absolutely amazing. And it won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Yeah, by for Bill. Bill. Been adapted from the from the book by Chris Bram, and um and was nominated for Ian McEwan for Best Actor and Lynn Redgrave for Best Supporting Actress, and Lynn won the Golden Glo- Globe for Best Supporting Actress, and everybody won and some of the Critics' Awards. The National Board of Review it swept everything. It got Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Replay. It was crazy. It was this big awards darling, and you know I got to go to, I remember going to this Golden Globe party at this huge mansion in Beverly Hills, and I walk in, and there's Sean Connery, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I, I, uh, I'm going to meet, meet my, uh, my James Bond idol, and he's talking to Michael Kane, who I worked with on Drastic Hill, so I was able to go up and say, hey, Michael, and then Michael introduced me to Sean Connery. It's like, are you kidding me? In what world would this ever happen? Right. It was just crazy stuff, um, but yeah, it, it, that working on that movie. But the, the most exciting thing for me on that movie was the recreation of the the lab, the Frankenstein laboratory set. Yeah. For uh, from for the flashback of of James Whale directing a scene from Bride of Frankenstein, which is my favorite movie of all time, and we found. Some of the electrical equipment that was actually used in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein wow. that was designed by Kenneth Strickbatten. and that same equipment had also been found by Mel Brooks and used in Young Frankenstein. Oh so wow! To it, and I mean, man, that that day we were shooting that was incredible. Did it, you uh, take anything
0: me. from the set? Did you take any souvenirs? Uh,
1: no. <laughs> but you got a photo. I,
0: you got photos. I would,
1: yeah, I have I have a picture of me standing on the set, but that's it. It's just like, oh. You just it's funny you don't think about those things so much when you're actually working on the films. Yeah. And then afterwards, years later, you're like, "Why did I not do that?"
0: Yeah. <laughs> um so tell people how they can find your book. So, my book you can get
1: on Amazon. Uh it's in hardcover, paperback, and audiobook.
0: I've been listening it, to the audio and you have all of these guest stars doing different voices, like Maxwell Caulfield from Greece 2. Yeah. He's a cool writer. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's, um, it's the, it was the coolest thing to do an audiobook. I mean, I narrate most of it, um, the memoir parts and the questions of the interviews, but for all the interview answers, for anybody who is still alive, I called them and convinced them to come in and record their answers again. And for people like Jane Seymour, Stephanie Beecham, um, and a bunch of others. And then for people who had passed away, I got other actors to agree to come in and record their voices.
0: You also won an award for it. Is that right?
1: I did. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, yes, uh, the Rondo Awards just announced their awards Uh, and I got writer of the year for this book, which I'm absolutely super thrilled about. They have their ceremony next month at the, at Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'll be, I'll, I happen to be a guest at that convention and I'm going to be able to be there for the ceremony and and pick up my award, which I'm really thrilled about.
0: Now you're also doing conventions. How can people learn where you're going to be? You definitely need
1: to friend me on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Instagram.
0: What's cool about horror fans? What makes oh, them cool? The, what's cool
1: about them is that I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and and I am a, I'm a—I'm such a fanboy and such a monster kid that, you know, this is my tribe. These are my people. And all the people that came on this Elvira tour to Romania, you know, I could, you know, because Cassandra, you know, she didn't want to been 24-7 with yeah. her super fans, uh, but I did. I mean, you know, I was with them all the time. I was, you know, there was never a minute that I wasn't, you know, hanging out at the bar or on the tour bus or whatever, and they were all like, you know, we can't believe you're spending all this time with us, and I'm going, what do you mean with us? I'm one of you, <laughs> and that's how I feel when I go to these conventions. I'm just, you know, I, I'm i just thrilled.
0: This has been really fun, Sam. Your book is really fun. The pictures are amazing. The illustrations are amazing. But what came across for me reading it is that you're not a snob. Like, you're an enthusiast. And and it comes across talking to you as well. Even when you're talking about the ups and downs of your career, there's an enthusiasm around this world that comes through. So I think my final question is this. Why do you love movies? Wow.
1: Wow. It's, you know... I just live and breathe and drink them in. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine a world without them. And I think it's just because from such a young age, I, I was always entertained by them. Um And we're so impressionable as kids. And I just, all of my big, big, huge impressionable moments just go back to movies. They mean everything to me. And wanting to make them, but also wanting to watch them. Um it just yeah, it's 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 everything. Every emotion that I have is I, I compare to something that happened in a movie. Um yeah, it's it's just everything.
0: I love it. Well it's been really fun talking to you. Uh congrats on the book and I'll look forward to more of your movies. I got got the the Zion one in my my queue. I started it, but I haven't figured out the mystery of the pottery yet. So we're not (laughs) there yet. I'm I'm very very invested in what's happening with the pottery, and I also want her to fall in love. So (laughs) hopefully both of those things will will manifest.
1: Since it's a Hallmark movie, there's a good bet on at least one of those.
0: All right. Thanks, Sam.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks again to Sam Irvin. Check out his book, I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter. You can get it on Amazon. All right, so this happened. Last night, I saw The Little Mermaid. A few friends and I went. uh, North Hollywood. Uh, Pretty packed house. Um, And I was into it. Like, I don't remember the original super well. Um, I like the music. I remember, of course. But boy, Halle Bailey is a supernova. She is so special as Ariel. uh, When she sang Part of Your World people applauded in the theater um that was pretty exciting and i liked the prince i thought he was cute i liked his dimples i liked the way he looked in his breeches i was into his song some people may not be i like melissa mccarthy i was into it you know there's a lot of cgi craziness that happens at the end and i'm like i just liked when they were flirting but i was into it so if you uh are thinking about seeing it i was into it You might like it. All right. That's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis anyone. Bye. Bye.